Hey, welcome to Midtown Fellowship. It's great to have you with us. Do you ever wonder what it means to be a Christian? Or what does the Bible teach? Maybe what does the church believe? Or maybe even what do you believe? Well, for generations, the church has had creeds to help answer those questions and operate a statement of faith. So join us this summer. We're going to dive into one of the oldest of the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, to try to find some of those answers ourselves. If you'd like more information, you can go to midtownfellowship.org, but we would love for you to join us for worship at 8.30 and 10.30 on Sunday morning. Hope to see you there. So we have uh, been working our way this summer through what you just read, the Apostles' Creed, um, trying to understand what is this ancient creed that we have historical records that go back to pieces of it to the first generation of Christianity. And trying to understand why should something like this be important to us. And it reminds me of, uh, I think it was probably 1974, my parents uh, decided to uh, take my two brothers and myself on this vacation. And uh, vacations were very rare in 74. <clears throat> vacations were they cut off your jeans and threw you outside and said, we'll see you when the summer's over. But for some reason, we ended up in Dallas at Six Flags Over Texas. And the whole way driving to Dallas, which took us a whole day to get there, and the next we stayed in a hotel, which was rare, we were all talking about the roller coasters. I can just remember my brothers, we were just talking about how we were going to ride every roller coaster a hundred times, that we were fearless. We puffed up our chest and we were so ready because we knew that Six Flags Over Texas had at the time the largest roller coaster in the country. It was called Big Ben. Have you ever heard of it? Wow, that is so sad <laughs> that I'm this old, okay? And Big Ben was one of those roller coasters. It was faster, it was taller, it had more twists and more turns and went upside down, which was unheard of. And we get there, and we're so stoked until we see it. And I remember looking at my big brother, and he's looking at me, and we sat there and watched that roller coaster for a half hour before we decided whether or not we were going to ride it. Because we are like, you've got to be kidding me. You know the whole click, click. Click, 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 that back in that day, all right? And then, so we're watching it forever. And that's when my dad came over. And this is what he said to us. He said, no matter how fast it goes, no matter how many curves after curves you face, no matter how upside down you get or side to side, you see those rails right there? The rails that the, the carts are on will bring you home. That's the Apostles' Creed. See what I just did there? <laughs> See, the Apostles' Creed are like rails because let me tell you, when you open up this book, there are going to be some huge drops. There are going to be some real spins. You're going to go, oh, I can't believe that. I mean, you're going to look at this at times and go, man, who I am and what I believe is in direct contradiction to what this is teaching. Really, that's what it says about God. I promise you, if you're going to get into this and you're going to really study this as the word of God and you never have a conflict with it, you're not really looking at it. But it doesn't have to just be here. I mean, just walk out those doors. I mean, politically, there is a storm going on out there. Racially, sexually, I mean, in every context you can possibly imagine, there is a storm in the world that we live in. And some of you are trying to raise children in that storm. 
And so where are the rails that help us have a better grasp on what this is teaching and what it's not teaching and a better grasp on how to walk into that world to be who we were made to be? Well, the Apostles' Creed gives us guidelines for that. So we've been studying the pieces of that, this creed that has guided the church and believers for generations and generations and generations. So we've come to the part that many of you have asked me about, and we finally come to it where it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. I thought about dressing like the Pope, but I decided against it, all right? I know everybody's laughing here, especially former Catholics. What does that mean that I believe in a holy church? That I really, I believe, that's what we're saying in the creed. I believe in a holy church. Because I got to tell you, that's hard. That's hard for me to say, and it's harder for me to believe. Because I read history, and I read the newspaper. Every accusation that has come against the church may not all be true exactly, but has been true at some point in history. You follow what I'm saying? Every conflict in the church, have you ever heard about a church having a conflict? Never. I mean, from spiritual abuse to sexual abuse to stealing to murder to hatred to slander to drunkenness to greed, it's all in there. It's all in there. You literally name something. And I'll show you in history where the church has struggled with that. Name it. And when I talk about being holy, the I believe in a holy church, that sticks in my mouth. I mean, I know, and maybe you know, or maybe you're here. I have friends who love Jesus. I mean, deeply love Jesus, and I deeply love them. That would never step foot in this building. They love Jesus, they don't like the church. They love Jesus, but they've been wounded by the church. One of my closest friends has a ministry that is transforming people's lives, and I can't get him to come to church because of his wounds. And those wounds, let me tell you, they're, they're legit. They're real. Because we are really good at hurting people. You know why? Because you're here. Oh, what does that mean? We're imperfect. We are an imperfect group of people. So when we talk about the church is holy and we believe in a holy church, we're saying something different than saying that we believe in a church that does it right all the time or that the church is full of really good people. Oswald Chambers maybe you know, he said, God has only one intended destiny for mankind and it's holiness. His only goal is to produce saints. God's not in some eternal blessing machine for people to use. And he didn't come to save us out of pity. He came to save us because he created us to be holy. So if God's agenda, if that's true, if God's agenda is holiness for you and for the church, maybe the understanding of holiness is different than just being really good and never wrong. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For by one sacrifice he has made holy forever those who are being made holy. In other words, like when, when I'm now connected with God, okay, and this is me, something happens when Christ went to the cross and then he rose again 
and he brought me from death to life. He made me new. The old is gone, something new. Now I'm spiritually alive, and I've been cleaned up, and I've been forgiven from all my sins. And then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within me. Holiness takes place. Scripture says, we have been made holy And then he goes on to say, those who are being made holy, meaning I have been made holy the moment Christ came into my life, but now my life is learning how to bring what's on the inside to the outside. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. And what is the law? The law is telling you what's right and what's wrong. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels. The law was made for the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and prejudices, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul goes and gives this mountain list of glorious sinners, just glorious sinners, Now, what we love to do in the church, because we don't often practice holiness, is we like to cherry pick which one of those is worse than the other. And typically, the way we cherry pick is we find the one that we don't struggle with, and then we point the finger at the ones that do. But I want you to hear what Paul says after he gives this long list of notorious sinners. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Like Paul is saying, what I'm about to say as my grandson would say, this is real life. Real life. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Save sinners. And listen to what he says, of whom I am the worst. Paul gives this long list of gross sins, everything you can imagine in the list that I just read. And he goes, look at all of them. Now look at me, and I'm worse than all of them. See, Holiness means something different than just being good. Holiness means by the work of Christ now, and holiness is, it's a hard word to get your hands around theologically. I mean, a lot of theologians have tried. It's like wet soap. You know, the more you squeeze it, it shoots out, you know. But it's this idea of all the attributes of God that make God God. And so they put it in the category of he is other. That this this is us, and we're not like that. He is. In all his attributes, he is God and he is other, and that otherness is holy. And when God wants to put other things in the category of set aside and other, he calls those things holy, like in the temple. They would set aside certain, you know, objects to be used for holy purposes. They were set aside. And so holiness is this this basic idea that God is transcendent, and because he is high and exalted, nothing in creation can match the Lord in his glory, power, and purity, and we call that holy. And so what God does through the work of Jesus Christ is now he comes to make a group of people other and holy with him. Now, if we go to the word that in the New Testament we use for church, it's ecclesia. And this word ecclesia, it's made up of, you know, this prefix, and it's a root. And the prefix is actually means out of. And the root is from the word kaleo, which means to call. So ecclesia means to be called out, to be set aside. 
It's the very definition of who we are as a church, is the one who is other, who has uh, every attribute of holiness now comes and makes us holy by setting us aside with him. And he dwells among us. You would think that would make us a better lot of people, wouldn't you? Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. There's not a person in this room that has not committed a sin that qualifies you from being separated from God. And we could go through the list. We could have fun with it. We could go and start on the front row and go, tell us your top three sins and just start. And then we could step back and go, some, such were some of you. Meaning there used to be a day where that defined you. That used to be your identity. That's who you were. But now Jesus has come and washed those things away to where that's not your identity anymore. Even though you may still struggle with those things. Because that's the messy fellowship of the saints. That's just true. I mean, look around you. You're a bunch of hurt people because you're humans. And you know what hurt people do? They hurt people. And people that struggle with things. But we know that we are God's people. We are his beloved. We're the ones that he has set apart with him to fill with his Holy Spirit and to empower us. So we believe in a holy church. But then it says Catholic. What's up with that? Well, there is no big reveal, even though we've been joking about it for a long time. That's not the big C. That's not the Roman Catholic Church. When the divines wrote this, they were talking about a small C, meaning this was a Greek word that meant um, the whole or universal or worldwide. Or it's, it's a word, the Greek word here talks about all-inclusive. What it's basically saying is there's a visible and invisible church. And when we say Catholic church, we're saying all of them. Everybody. And when we say visible church, we're talking about, you know, look around you. Like people that say, hey, I belong to Jesus. This is me. Hey, visible church. Visible church. Invisible church is there are saints that have gone before you that are no longer living that are still a part of the church. And they're going to saints more than likely that are going to come after you, that are going to live that you don't know, that you haven't seen, that uh, are part of the church. And there are people here in this room that say, I'm part of the church. And you're really not, you know, where you kind of have, you say, I'm here, but I'm not really here, but you're not really, you've not really been rescued from your sins, but you kind of like church because you think my preaching's unbelievable and you can't wait to hear next week's sermon. I got it. It's all Christians everywhere at all times. That's Catholic. That's what we believe in. We believe that we are one. And here's why that's so important. Because let me tell you what's true about the church. Whoo, there are many flavors when it comes to the church. Many, many, many. I mean, I'm just telling you, there's, very, there's a lot of colors, there's a lot of flavors, a lot of nationalities, a lot of languages, a lot of traditions, like crazy traditions, which I love, like just fun stuff. Like there are churches you go to that if you're not dancing, you're not worshiping. I'm thinking that might be fun just for a couple of weeks, wouldn't it? Like a big disco ball right here in the middle of the room. 
Thank you, Chad. Some love soft music, you know, and, you know, where, oh, don't sway. Some like, you know, are like the Frozen Chosen, and you just can't, don't do anything that seems exciting. You know, keep it steady. Give me a booklet that tells me everything that's about to happen so that I can read along. Like, some churches are like that, and it's beautiful. Some churches, you never know what's going to happen. You know, people start running down the middle of the aisles with banners, you know, and they're in spandex and they're doing all kinds of stuff. Have y'all been to churches like this? I, I swear they're out there. And this is just Nashville, I'm telling you. Some churches don't have any music at all, like this right here. No, no instruments whatsoever. I mean, they're right across the street, right? you know? And then there's some that, like, what we do is so mild, man, you know? They want, like, just bring it. Some celebrate the gifts. Some have a super-duper dose of the ghost. Some don't at all. Here's what we're saying when we say, I believe in the holy, set-apart, Catholic church, that everyone that knows Jesus is a part of my family. Every one of them. They're all a part of my family. No matter what language they speak, no matter what their color is, no matter what their culture is, no matter how they like to worship, no longer, no matter how long the preacher likes to preach, they are my brothers and they are sisters of mine because they have been transformed by the completed work of Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, you're in. If you know Jesus, you're part of the holy family. That's why we say here at Midtown all the time, uh, we apologize for this building. It was the best we could do with the money that we had. We apologize for the stained glass windows because traditionally what this says is this is the sanctuary. This is where Jesus dwells, you know? And it's not. This is not. This is just a building. This is just bricks. Somebody made that glass. There's nothing holy about that glass up there. We're the sanctuary. We're the place when the temple curtain tore, when Jesus rose from the dead. Holiness now escaped the inner temple and has gone nationwide, worldwide, with us. And where does the Holy Spirit dwell now? In us. We don't go to church. We are the church. And when we gather together, we recognize that together we are the church together. That's why we say here all the time, if you went to church, it's going to be over, I promise you, in about 30 minutes. But if you are the church, hang on, because that truth is going to mess up your life. It will, I promise. <laughs> so let's talk about that just for a second. There's some truths here. If you belong to Jesus, believe it or not, you belong to me. I belong to you. Um, whether you like that or not, I'm your brother. You're part of the family. You're my brother and you're my sister. If you are called to this, this is what's impossible. If you're called to this, this makes you called to this. Period. Because here's the truth of the scriptures. Jesus says that he's come to give us everything we need for life and godliness. And you know how he does that? By not giving you everything you need in yourself. In fact, you have limits and you lack. There's not a person in here with all the gifts. 
There's not a person in here with all the resources. There's not a person in here that if we just put you up on the stage and said, if all of y'all would just be like her, then this would be a perfect church. That person doesn't exist. What the Lord did when he said, I'll give you all that you need for life and godliness, he said, through this, through this, this concert of gifts, this concert of different looking faces, this concert of different experiences, this concert of different prejudice and hatreds and struggles and loves and passions and work, like all of us together, the holy mess of the church, when we step into this, the Lord begins to give us everything we need for life and godliness. So the first thing that we're called to do as the body of Christ is to believe that and practice love for one another. Do y'all know Alex and Carly Horton? I said they moved into our neighborhood this week. And I got a text, a group text from him and said, hey, does anybody have a lawnmower I can borrow? And I'm thinking, uh, hey, I got one. So I texted him, I'm not at a house, but you can go in my back garage and you can grab my lawnmower and keep it as long as you need it. I haven't started it in a year. <laughs> love that. I love it. I hate lawnmowers. And I go, see, body of Christ at work. Brother has a need, I got a lawnmower, met the need. Boom. That's not at all what we're talking about. <laughs> that's not it at all. If that's what being in a godly community is about, thank God. Look how easy that is. Bonhoeffer, who maybe you're familiar with his writings, wrote a lot about community, and he says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Lending my lawnmower to the Hortons is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about for me to arrange my life in such a way that I know that this is true, that I've been set apart and you've been set apart, and I'm arranging my life to know that one of the calls, one of the primary calls in my life is to you and you to me and to those around you. See, this is, this is where it really gets hard. Because, you know, I can't do that with a church on the other side of town, much less a church on the other side of the world. I, I can't have that kind of intimacy and that kind of relationship to where I'm practicing love with other people that I don't know. Even like just down the street or other churches in Green Hills, I can't do that. I don't have the capacity to do that. So one of the things that we do here is we take vows and we join this body because this is the place that I'm going to live out this storyline that God has made me for. This is the place that I'm going to sacrifice for. This is the place that I'm going to live for. This is the place that I'm going to learn how to suffer in and be in community with. And it's not just so we can love each other. Like, that's great. Like, I, I love community. I mean, I, do you love community? I love community. You know, I love having friends. I love having group texts that I'm included in, you know, and they send out funny stuff, and I'm like, huh, that's for me too. You know, I love all that stuff. It's so much fun. 
But it's not just for that. I'm just not to build my best life now. Like how do I fluff the pillows of my friendships and my community to where I have the kind of friends that we go on vacations together, you know, and we have stories. We raise our kids together. We high five one another, you know, and we have these images that when I go to the grave, you know, you'll carry, you'll be a pallbearer for me, you know, from the womb to the tomb. I got these friends. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm not downplaying that at all. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a community that doesn't just kind of soothe your social needs or hugs you in hard times. We're talking about a community that, that is practicing godly, holy love toward you. And if I don't have that mindset, then here's what's going to happen. When you get hard, I'm gone because you're not giving me what I want. When, when you get difficult to love, I need to go find somebody else that's easier to love. And the reason that's really difficult is because it's only a matter of time where the people around you decide that about you. Because let me tell you something, you are hard to love. There are things about you, I know this may be hard to believe. But if you're married here, just turn to your spouse and say, is that true? And they'll affirm it. There are things about you that make you nearly impossible for other people to love you. Nobody's laughing. <laughs> no, it's nervous. It's like, is that true? It's true. Because if you get close enough to other people, you're going to find things about them that you're going to go, no, 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 I'm out. Didn't know you had that going on in your life. I didn't know you had that kind of attitude. I didn't know that you struggled with anger. And then you struggled with it toward me. Like, or you don't know how to do conflict, or you don't know how to resolve things, or you have way too many expectations that you don't tell anybody about. And then you hold me accountable for them. Like, loving is hard. And if we're just looking for comfort, we're going to avoid the power. Because when we move toward one another and we start to love one another, here's what happens. We begin to transform one another. See, we go to Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 12, it's, it's talking about the community and about what we've just been talking about. And he says, Paul says, we're here to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And see, this community of loving is to equip and it is to equip us so that we can build one another up for what? Look at verse 14. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves of culture, by my past, by my immaturity, by my struggles. We're not being blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, because of together, we will learn how to speak the truth in love. And we'll grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We need each other. I need you to build me up so that I can... Walk away from living like an infant and being blown around by this culture or blown around by the things that I may not understand in this and blown around by my own insecurities and blown around by my own past and my own story that seems to haunt me in my present or by my shame. Like, I need you to grow up in those things. You need me. I was with my mentor yesterday. And if you don't have a mentor, let me try to explain this. Like, like we, 
That's pretty good. Uh, this is the Catholic Church. Every believer in the world, every believer that's been and has not been, this here is maybe the group of Christians that I kind of know uh, here in Nashville or maybe here at Midtown. But these right here, th these, this circle that I've intentionally built through my small group, the discipleship, through going to somebody, imagine going to somebody and saying to them, I need to live out the reality of this with you so that I can better understand the reality of this. Will you do that with me? One of those things is to have mentors, people that have gone ahead of you, and saying to them, lead me. So I went to my mentor yesterday and I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spill out all that I'm thinking. Tell me what you think. Yeah, it was painful. Um, you know, what's hard is because uh, we need other people's perspectives and we're committed to our perspective. We need other people to say to us, let that go. Do, do you know that, as John Calvin says, our hearts are like idol factories, that we create idols out of work, we create idols out of money, we, we actually start to love things more than we love people, we use people instead of loving people, we forget that the purpose of my life is not to make a bunch of money. And it's not to have a big house, it's not to have a great car, the purpose of my life is to love people. That's to love people and love God. Like that, what serves that purpose? But that purpose gets in the way when other loves start competing. Like my love for success or admiration or accolades or the world to say, well done. Like all that stuff gets in the way. And sometimes we need somebody who just grabs us and says, hey, wake up. Remember what is most true about you and remember what your mission is. And that's hard. And when we experience that, it's beautiful. And some of you could get up here and tell stories about gospel transformation communities that you're a part of and how they love you and pray for you and teach you and care for you and mentor you and grow you, how they walk with you through deep places and give you insight and counsel and never let you go there alone. We could talk about that. And it's so beautiful but here's the thing that we have to be very careful about, Midtown, is this is this community. Oh, hey, Alex, I even see you over there, man. Talking about you. I used to see an illustration. Were you here? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Our purpose is not to build community that just is caring for itself. Our purpose is not, and Scripture's purpose for us is not to build the best community we can possibly build. So that we have this amazing, like, just life that's just easy and it's flow and I got my friends and my friends got me and we're just, no, we are a part of one another's lives to love one another because we are equipping one another and growing one another up because we are going on mission together. That's the purpose for us to grow. We're not trying to become the best me to have what I want. We are becoming the real me so that I can give it away. See, I, Chad and I were talking about this the other day. You realize that, that this place, what you're a part of right here, we're on mission. 
Midtown is uh, a ministry uh, that is fighting for gospel transformation in your life through multiple congregations. And we have five, and if you count Napier, six campuses where this is happening today, right now. And here's what Midtown has said to you and to me. You guys have green hills. Like our Creve Hall, you guys have Creve Hall. Be on mission over there. But you guys have Green Hill. Be on mission here. And if you were here back in January, you heard our mission. Double the love and double the impact. And you know what's funny is when we kept talking about double the love, double the love, and what we're talking about is we want to go on mission to bring the mission of the, the message of Christ and the message of transformation and hope to this part of the city. That's our mission. We, we pray for that. We labor for that. We work for that. That's why we invite the neighbors to come to our farmer's market. We want them to meet y'all. We want them to see what's going on here. We want them to become a part of the life of the church to hear about what Jesus is doing and experience him themselves. Here's what's so funny. When we talk about double the love and we talk about we want to reach the city, nobody's come to me and said, hey, man, uh, like, look around. There may be like uh, 60 seats empty in here right now. And if you come here at the 1030, there are no seats empty. Uh-oh. How are we going to do that? How are we going to reach the city when the chapel's already full? I, I don't know. Unless we start to say what's more important, our chapel or our mission. I don't know what God's going to teach us. What he's going to show us, I'm just telling you that we don't forget that we are on mission. And what happens when we realize that we're on mission, it transforms us and it changes us. But what it changes us into is these powerful human people that value powerful human people. So we're about to come to this table uh, before we do, I want, I want to show you something. I thought uh, in prayer this morning about showing this, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and show it to you. It's a movie clip that I think explains when we go on mission that it transforms community from being just this, this enclosed ecosystem into a place where we're actually a part of transformation that happens in the world that we live in. And this is from a movie, maybe you've seen it, maybe you've not. Um, but it was a movie that came out like in the early uh, 90s. It won a ton of awards. And it was a movie based around uh, the Holocaust in World War II. And there was a character, is a true life character, it's a true story about Oscar Schindler, who uh, was this egomaniac, this businessman, who was, I think it was Poland that he went into. And it was Nazi-occupied Poland, and he went in there to try to capitalize on the war and make as much money as he could. I mean, you be, if you've ever seen the movie, the movie really paints this guy as kind of a sleazy fella. Like, you know, all he wanted to do was smoke too much, drink too much, spend too much time with women that weren't his wife. He just wanted to make a bunch of money, wanted the best of booze, best of clothes, best of food, best of cars, best of everything. And in his pursuit, his relentless pursuit of self, uh, he realized for him to build a factory where he's going to make a bunch of money, he needed a bunch of workers. So he went to the concentration camp 
and talked all these German officers that he's been wheeling and dealing with into giving him 1,300 Jews that would come and work in his factory. But he had a dilemma. And the dilemma was in the concentration camp, they were killing all the Jews. And in his mind, you're killing all my workers, which means you're killing my prophet, which means you're killing what I want, which is me and what's good for me. So he started to negotiate with these concentration camp officers to try to get them to let the prisoners stay over here at the factory and promise him that if they kill anybody, they won't kill these 1,300. And as he began to experience this community of people, when he began to realize that what he was doing was actually saving lives, and slowly his accountant began to give him a vision that was bigger in his life than his own pleasure. He began to slide into being on mission. And the mission now was something that was bigger than himself. And his mission now was something that was bigger than his profit. His mission now was something bigger than his own self-gratification. And it messed him up. And what I want to show you is this is the end of the scene of the movie where the Allies had come into Poland now and they were about to free the concentration camps. But now Schindler, instead of being a man of power, now is a man who is a refugee because the Allies were going to arrest him because he was a Nazi sympathizer. And now this community that he had learned to love is gathering around him uh, where he protected them, now they're protecting him. Uh, and I want you to see this, and we'll talk about it for a minute before we come to the table. We've written a letter trying to explain things in case you were captured. Every worker has signed it. Because of you, look at them. 
if I'd made more money. <laughs> I threw away so much money. <laughs> you have no idea. If I just... Generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. This car. Oh God, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for at least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. Person stand. For this. I could have got one more person. And I didn't. And I didn't. <laughs> so it's my prayer that um, you'll receive that video and the spirit it was intended that you see that. Um, that love makes sacrifices. What you didn't see was the ring that they presented to him. Um, the prisoners all pulled gold from their fillings and contributed to make that ring. Uh, it was a sacrifice. And then if you noticed what finger he put that ring on, um, his hand was, he married himself to this community. And when you do that, it's gonna mess you up because you stop loving the things that you used to love and love now for other things begin to take their place. And it's hard to self-protect in that place. And it's hard to self-gratify in that place because something takes greater precedence. So at the end of this is the communion of the saints, which was what we're about to do. And here's what my prayer is, is that as you come to this table, that one, you'll come to the one that has said once you were not a people, but now you're my people. And as you come here to this table, that you'll ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, what keeps me from bringing all that you've given me and the gifts that you've given me to this community? The people in this room need you. They need you. And here's what's crazy. You need them. And come to this table and that we put down those silly things that keep us from wedding ourselves to the body of Christ, that keep us from being on mission together. Let's put them down and let's taste the goodness of the Lord that has made us new and stand up as a part of a body, as a part of a family, as a part of a community. So the way we do that here at Midtown is the band is going to come back in in a second when I pray and this time is a time of worship for you, for you to 
enjoy the worship music, to let it uh, sink into you, let it be a time of contemplation and prayer. And the, I don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing in you for what I've said or through the reading of Scripture. Uh, listen to what he's saying to you. And then when you're ready to come and uh, be at this table, then use any aisle you want. Come on up. Um, feel free to uh, kneel or to stand or whatever you need is to be a part of your worship. And when you're ready to take communion, put your hands out and those that are serving will serve you. Just a note, when you get through, if you go out the door here and use the outside hallway to get back to the seat, it just helps a little bit with traffic. Um, the, the communion cup, we serve wine here. And if wine is not something that uh, you want to partake in, the inner circle is grape juice and feel free to use that. Let me read for you the words of the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took cup, the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In fact, there's a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 10. It says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Join me in prayer. Lord, bless the elements of this table, Father. Would you use this uh, means of grace, this sacrament, Lord, to minister to us. That, Lord, we would remember who we are and who you've made us to be. That we would know that, Lord, we have been gifted by your Holy Spirit and we have been uniquely designed to play a role in the body of Christ. Not just to love one another, but also to equip one another and to build one another up and to go on mission together. So I pray, Father, that as we come to this table, that Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us those barriers, those idols, those false loves that are keeping us from being who we are and being who we are to each other. Would you help us to put those down, Lord, and teach us the hard lesson of learning how to love, even though it's sacrificial, even though, Lord, sometimes it's hard and it hurts. Lord, teach us at this table that you went to the cross for us to love us. And you ask us to follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.